This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 573 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Bedros Koulian. Now, what makes this interview unique is I actually traveled to California and sat with Bedros in person in his studio in Fit Body Bootcamp HQ. So we discussed a host of topics from his immigrant story from Armenia into the US as a young boy, the obesity epidemic, capitalism in schools, his powerful mental health story, and so much more. Now, I want to say as well, I will be posting the video of this on the Behind the Shield podcast YouTube channel, which is very, very rare. I think I've got like two episodes on this so far. But I felt like as the conversation was taped, we should put it on the YouTube channel too. So before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of 573 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Bedros Koulian. Enjoy. Well, Bedros, I want to start by saying thank you so much for welcoming me to your HQ today. Now, my podcast is audio only, so for people listening, where are we sitting right now? Uh, well, first off, thank you for coming in. And uh, we're actually sitting in our studio at our Fit Body Bootcamp headquarters. Um, it's actually a funny story about the studio. We never had one up until about four years ago when we bought this building. And so we had a simple green screen that came down. Um, and it was just all this noise in our little office that we had. People were on phones while I was trying to film. I said, I want to build out a really nice studio, and I'm willing to spend as much as $100,000. Um, well, $500,000 just for this room, um, but well worth it. Yeah. Absolutely. 
It's beautiful. Yeah, I've got a microphone and a computer, so that's, that's a little more than I've got. That's exactly where I started. And I don't even have a, a, a fern or a palm in there between. There you go. So. <laughs> one day we're going to upgrade to a real one. This is plastic. Well, I know that you were not born in Orange County, California. Right. So I would love to start. I know you've talked about your origin story a lot, but as an immigrant myself, you know, I think it's an important conversation, especially when obviously there's a very positive spin to it. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure. Well, um, so I was born in a communist country, the Soviet Union, specifically Armenia. And Armenia um, was occupied by the Soviet Union. Of course, we all know that communism fell in 93, 94. Uh, but in 1980, when I was six years old, my dad, who was a member of the Communist Party, decided that we were going to escape. Uh, and the reason is my next closest sibling was, was 14 years older than me, my brother. So I was six. He was 14 years older, making him just old enough to go into the Soviet Army. And at the time, in the 80s, um, the Soviet Army was fighting Afghanistan at war with Afghanistan. And there was Russian soldiers coming back with limbs missing and, and, um, and, and body bags. And my dad was the hell if my son is going to go fight the Soviet war when we've been occupied by the, by the Soviets. And so he put together as much money as he could and he bribed um, some government officials allowing us to escape into Italy, a uh, family of five, again, me being the youngest, six years old. And in Italy, we went to the American consulate in Rome within about 10 days we got all of our paperwork squared away where we were able to legally enter the United States as political refugees. Um, and, you know, we didn't have much in Armenia, but we still lived the best possible life there. Like if, you know, if the shelves were running out of bread, we may have gotten a bag that had molded bread but at least we got bread because my dad was a member of the Communist Party. So we had a little bit of pull. Uh, when we got here, it was even worse because we were so broke, so poor. Um, and broke is being financially without money. Poor is this, this state of mind. And we had this poor state of mind and we were financially broke, living in Section 8 housing in Santa Ana, California. At the time, it was gang infested. And so there was a family of five of us, me being the youngest, my older, my next oldest sibling, 14 years older, my, my brother, 16 years older than me, was my sister. Um, and we made by, man. We were, uh, there was a lot of dumpster diving and eating, not eating out of, people always go, God, you were eating out of garbage cans. And we were not eating out of garbage cans. Like, my dad had discovered that there was um, these giant dumpsters in the back of grocery stores. And when food expires or uh, gets a little moldy well they can't sell it on the shelves they have to throw it away and so once my dad figured that out these perfectly sealed foods that were expired or a little moldy like he would push me and lift me up and put me into the dumpster and i'd pick out all types of stuff um, from from dairy products milks cheeses uh, peanut butter bread if bread had a little bit of mold on it my mom would pick it off and we'd fry the bread and eat it but um so jokingly, I had become the breadwinner of the family while my parents and my older brother and sister worked multiple jobs here in the States to make ends meet so we can move out of our Section 8 housing, the apartment complex that we lived in, and uh, get our own cleaner apartment in the safer part of the neighborhood. Um, and my dad told me one thing, and he was very clear about it. He said, this country offers you opportunities and freedoms. Uh, that no other country does, uh, so long as you work hard and serve the people in this community. And um, so that's what I did. Everything, I literally believed every word he said and said, I'm going to work hard and help people. And um, all my companies today, whether it's our Fit Body Bootcamp franchise or a Truly Supplement Company or my personal development programs are all designed to serve humanity. And as a byproduct of that, we, we, we make money and I'm very grateful for that. Now, I had, I've had guests that grew up in communist Poland, grew up in communist Hungary. 
Um, when you look back, what are some of the things you saw, stories you heard? Obviously, there's a kind of Russian story brewing again now. So mm -hmm. talk to me about, you know, young Bedros's experience of, of living under that regime. <laughs> one of the, it's funny, right? Because one of the craziest things that I remember happening there was it had just gotten dark. It was maybe a couple of months before we, we escaped. And there was a knock on the door um, and kind of like Hungary and Poland, you know, people lived in, I guess, apartments, right? Not, not, like, not like here where there's single family homes, detached homes. And we lived in, in Russian, it's called Kvartira, uh, apartment buildings where you live in. And so there was a knock on our door and my mom opens the door and there's two KGB agents they just come right in and they ask for my dad. And this is the thing I remember most is um, they made us line up in the hallway that divided the door corridor to the kitchen. And then beyond the kitchen was like a little eating area and then like a little sitting area. And then the two bedrooms, uh, my mom and dad's bedroom, and then me, my brother and sister's bedroom were all divided up there. Um, we lined up with our backs against that corridor, the hallway, and they were inspecting our house to see if there was any evidence that my dad was planning an escape. Uh, now here, you have you need probable cause, you need a warrant. You're not just knocking on a door if you're the FBI or whoever and coming in. There's, uh, but that wasn't the case there. And so my dad was a tailor in Armenia. He worked at a giant men's. Um, soup manufacturing plant, and he had figured out that if he puts the pattern of material close together, they gave him so much material, and of course they gave him the paper patterns to make the jackets and the vests and the slacks, he had figured out that if he puts the pattern super close together, that after every 10 or 12 suits that he makes, he could have enough material left over to make another suit at home. And so they were looking for a meter stick and chalk and you know, anything that would indicate that he was making suits at home and selling it on the black market for that extra cash that we needed or rubles that we needed to escape. Uh, they found nothing. They found nothing because my dad was just great at putting things away and hiding them, never leaving anything out. And um, so my dad being, the, the second part of that story is that he's so clever. Once they couldn't find any evidence, my dad in Russian asked them, well, you came all this way to our house. I certainly don't want this to be a wasted trip for you two gentlemen. I have this bottle of vodka. Would you want to share it with me? And the three of them sat down, the two KGB agents and my, my dad, and they brushed off that whole bottle of vodka and they left. And uh, two months later, we were on our way to Italy. Um, and it was just, just this crazy story, like you could make a movie out of it. but. When I think about how that would never happen here and how that was a standard practice there, um, it just really shows me the difference between communism and a, and, a, and a country that has some constitutional rights, while they're slowly eroding right now, hopefully we can fight back, there's still constitutional rights that we have that's um, fundamental towards freedom. Well, just touching on that for a second, this is completely apolitical. I can't stand both sides, I'll be very honest. But that being said, <clears throat> from a humanistic point of view, there seem to be some warning signs that have paralleled some of those guests that came from the Eastern Bloc. Just like I said, just from an observational point of view, what are some of the early red flags that we're perhaps seeing at the moment? Well, right off the bat, we see division. Anytime you can divide the people, so in the Soviet Union, 18% uh, of the population were members of the Communist Party. Like my dad was a party member, uh, which actually gave us a hard time when we came to the United States. They said, well, listen, why were you a Communist Party member? They gave you a choice. Okay, congratulations. You can now become a Communist Party member if you'd like to accept. My dad's saying, well, yes, it was a choice. But if I said no, I'd end up in Siberia peeling potatoes and that would be the death of me. Um, and so when you do become a Communist Party member, my dad had this red passport-like size identification card. And anywhere he went with that, like he was the authority. So while we were the top 
of the food chain there, it still didn't compare to, so there was even division there. You look at Germany and how Hitler separated uh, the Jews from the rest of the population. They're dirty, they're filthy, they are, um, they, they are unkept and they, they're, they're doing our jobs. Um, the moment you start creating division, the moment you start creating confusion and chaos, manufactured, manufactured confusion, chaos. Let me tell you, uh, we've had many more reasons to panic, like 9-11, like our housing market crash. Um, there was a big stock market crash in 1986-87 where so many, so many people lost either their, all, all their belongings uh, and, and killed themselves. Yet a virus that is 99.7% um, recovery rate, so long as you don't have any one of those potential uh, markers that might put you at higher risk, obesity, diabetes, et cetera, uh, we use that as great propaganda. And then we divide by mask users and people that don't want to use masks. You abide by six feet, I don't. You want the vaccine, this guy doesn't. How many elements of division can we create? Uh, to the point where even in 2020, uh, black versus white. And to bring up issues in a time where to be female and black, you have everything going for you in this country. To be female and black, you have every opportunity, more opportunities being female and black than any other specific individual. Uh, yet we can create division around that. And in the past, that division has been harder to create because, well, it's just TV. And there was usually one or two networks. Today, it's social media. And today, if you have a voice on your podcast and your social media, you, then you have an opinion. And if you have an agenda, you can be part of that division, um, as can I, as can the next person. Uh, but some of the red flags that I see is that. Uh, and Ronald Reagan, of course, said that the eight most dangerous words in this world are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And the bigger that government gets, the smaller the citizens' freedoms and, and their ability to decide get. And so we've seen government get big, which is a big red flag. We, that's how communism was. And we see the Soviet Union, you know, Russia now, trying to invade Ukraine again, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and, and so history will tend to repeat itself. Those who are unaware of the historical data will sit around and watch it repeat. Um, you know, there was the Armenian genocide and Hitler said, remember uh, what the Turks did to the Armenians? No one remembers what they did to the Armenians in, in 1915 and no one's gonna remember what we do to the Jews. Um, and so genocides continue to happen, division continues to happen and people sit around and watch in their gut knowing that there's something unnatural happening. But we all think that, I'm sure James has his finger on the pulse. Someone's looking out for it when no one's really looking out and the agenda and the narrative keeps moving forward. And again, like you, I'm neither left or right. Uh, I think we ought to legalize marijuana. I think we ought to, like on a federal level, I, I think, you know, a woman's right to choose is a woman's right to choose, but I do believe in financial conservatism and let people have smaller governments so they can have greater control. Uh, and I think both sides have massive agenda. But right now, we're at a very critical time in history that 10 years from now, we'll look back in some weird documentary and go, holy cow, look at how much money and power exchanged hands and how freedom slowly uh, died one cut at a time, because you can't just take away freedom from humanity. Everybody will rebel. But I can get you to not go out uh, shopping other, or out anywhere else other than shopping, grocery store. I can get you to only wear a mask in these areas. I can get you to slowly be willing to erode your freedoms until you have just this little small island of freedom that you're standing on and realize you have no other freedoms. That's what's happening right now.
So yeah, that's such an important um, lens for people to, to hear. I had um, Dr. Edith Eager, who's an Auschwitz survivor, and she doesn't like to be labeled like that. She's an amazing woman that happened to be in Auschwitz and crushed it, in, basically, right. for lack of a better word. She was incredible. She treated it as a, as a challenge. Yes, as a, as a mental fortitude training mm-hmm. tool. Um, then became a psychologist and now is revered and just absolutely amazing. And uh, she's in her 90s when I interviewed her. But again, it's the warning signs. It's the death by a thousand cuts. And it's so important. Another thing, and I'll get back to your timeline in a minute because I like these tangents. What I saw coming from the first responder profession, seeing behind the curtain, seeing what actually people die from, what keeps them alive, you know, all these things. Having a background in strength and conditioning, being, you know, educated in strength and conditioning, all these things is from day one, there was not only not a mention of underlying health and how we should improve that, but it was actually suppressed. How dare you talk about you know underlying health? Um, you know, obviously there was a huge financial impact for your you know your franchises. But what have you seen coming from the wellness background with your business, with your own personal kind of mission on that factor? And then how starting today do we push the needle on on improving the health when we have seventy percent? obese or overweight in this country at the moment. And, you know, that to me is why we're losing so many people during this pandemic. Well, well that is. And, and the real pandemic is the pandemic of the obese. Three million Americans die every year of obesity, specifically. Not with COVID, right? Because there was a lot of deaths, you know, with COVID versus from COVID. Um, but the real pandemic is obesity. You talk about a disease an ailment that could be absolutely treated, yet no one is willing to treat it. And as you said, when the pandemic takes place, why are we suppressing the things that will actually boost our immune system and well-being? We know that vitamin D is essential for your immune system. What do they tell us? Don't go outside. We know that exercise is essential for your mental and physical health. Gyms are shut. We know that human connection is essential for our mental well-being. Stay away from everybody. Now, if I was going to write a manifesto on how to erode freedoms, I would literally want to take the population and make them sick and confused and scared and weak. Because you seem like a pretty strong and capable man. You are a threat to me if I'm trying to oppress society and erode freedoms. I have to find a way to make sure your immune system crashes, to make sure that your mental health is weak, and to make sure that you're not physically strong so that I can move my agenda forward. I'm not saying anyone's out there writing a, writing a uh, manifesto on how to take away freedoms. I'm just saying that it sure seems like something was unfolding. And so what do we do today? Well, I think about halfway through 2020, people figured out very quickly that we're not just flattening a curve. And each time we agree to a two-week flattening of the curve, they take a little bit more, they take a little bit more, they take a little bit more. I mean, we've gone from double masks to double injections to boosting shots to, uh, I remember seeing, I went to get gas and there was a lady wiping down her eggplants and her tomatoes with some spray within the first two or three weeks of corona, so you can't blame her. But yet I looked at her and she looked very obese. And I thought to myself, you know, I bet I could lick the doorknob of her car and the door handle of her car and I'll be just fine because I take every other precautionary step to look after my health. But so what do we do today? Um, Well, people started doing it. They just said, to heck with this. I'm going to start working out. I'm going to go to the beach. Uh, they had, dude, they had literally put barricades in parking, in parking spaces at the beach here. And so people were just parking across the street at, at restaurants and hotels and on the street and going to the beach because the human spirit knows what it needs to survive. I need society and community, a tribe. I need to be out in fresh air and I need to get my son and need to work out. Yet we take all that away so strategically. Um, So what do we do moving forward? Well, if the CDC, if the elected officials, not our leaders, we don't have leaders. If the elected officials 
took as much time and effort in encouraging and promoting getting your 15, 20,000 steps a day, get some sun, be around others, eat clean. And what does eating clean look like? Not just reading the labels of boxes that have gotten uh, of, of, of big food conglomerates that have bribed the FDA to write heart healthy with a tiny little asterisk next to it so that when you, if you happen to see the asterisk, then you would have to read in the back that this is not proven, this is not, it may not be good for you, but we can write heart healthy because. Um, but again, there's a purpose for that. If I want to control the masses, just like in Rome, they built the Colosseum. It was great, man. My family and I went to Rome in 2018. Uh, they, they explained, hey, when they build the Colosseum, it is to literally entertain the masses, entertain the people, and, and, and keep them occupied as, as they begin to take more land and increase taxes and create more laws uh, that are to designed to control the populace. But then, as long as we can entertain you, you don't see all that coming. And we're being entertained really well right now, too. Yeah, no, and I think that's, that's it. I mean, for example, sports. Sports are amazing. But creating an environment where almost no one is playing the sports, but they're sitting there watching it, drinking beers, eating chicken wings, you know, is, is that the core of what a sport's supposed to be. No, sport is on the field with other people, yeah. suffering a little bit, getting a little bit sweaty, getting daylight, getting fresh air. And then at the end, you know, having that sense of accomplishment or, okay, we got beaten. What are we going to do? What are we going to fix? What are we going to learn? But, you know, and then you have this this pandemic now and now you've got Tiger King and <laughs> right. all well, these things. You know things. what's crazy about that, man? You, brought, you bring up some, a really powerful point here. Let's just talk about this. I don't want to cuss. Oh, you, you can on my show. So right, these motherfuckers, <laughs> these motherfuckers will sit on the couch eating their Cheetos and have all this Cheeto dust on their belly while just talking about my team, whether their team is the Lakers or the Raiders or the Dodgers, my team. And they know the stats of every player and they know how many home runs and what their up for bat is or what their free throw shots are. But they don't know what their fucking kid ate for lunch at school. They don't know who their kids are hanging out with. They don't know their own body fat percentage. They don't know how long it would take them to run a mile. Yet they know the stats of my team when you don't fucking own that team. That's what bothers me most about society today is we have gotten so dumb, so stupid, so complacent that we will root for my team. Even though you don't own the Lakers, you don't own the Raiders, all you do is get fat eating bonbons and Cheetos and rooting for a team that you know more information on than remembering your anniversary or your spouse's birthday. And that's what's sad. That is the erosion of humanity. That's what's wrong with this world. And that's why people are fat and sick and diseased. Uh, and I'm talking about mentally and physically, not just physically. Like people are now mentally diseased. When you think about 400% increase in medication, that is designed to deal with depression, anxiety, uh, overwhelm, stress, uh, benzodiazepine. I, I mean, these things are so fucking addictive, yet they're handing out so much rather than handing out sage advice like, instead of being an armchair quarterback, why don't you go to a field and play soccer, play football, play baseball, get on the court and play basketball. And like you said, win or lose, at least you got daylight, you had camaraderie, you got some level of fitness in, start keeping track of your own stats instead of the stats of some fuck nut who's on the court. Anyhow. <laughs> I'm glad I asked that you, question. I'm good. <laughs> good. So a thing I talk about a lot and, you know, I think it's been so disappointing is, you know, the beginning of this, the lack of wellness information, I was told, well, you know, the vaccine's a master low-hanging fruit. Well, fast forward two fucking years, here we are, you could be two years healthier in a nation. One of the things I see through English eyes moving to the US is, you know, the way we mentor a community is we start in the schools. 
So, you know, we have schools that serve fast food that have soda machines in that are canceling PE classes to put more standardized testing, you know, subjects. So again, through your eyes, what can we do better from the child, you know, the children's age and the, and the school age so that we can start changing this mentality that, you know, as you said, I'm going to go watch football and then my, my doctors give me all these pills. That'll be fine because as a paramedic, it's not. I watch you die with a bag full of pills. Right. You know? So how, do, how again, how do we how do we change the philosophies in our schools so that we can actually, even if this generation is possibly a lost cause, that we can stop the bucket the next one that 10, 15 years from now are going to be this incredible force that, you know, is not going to allow what happened this last couple of years? I think I have the answer. The answer is capitalism. It truly is capitalism. You put, you put schools in the hands of capitalists. In other words, if government, state and federal, stop running schools and they go, hey, look, we take tax dollars from all these people, we're going to give it to a private entity that is going to educate. We want our kids to come out at this level of fitness, this level of education in terms of IQ education, this level of EQ, emotional quotient, ability to like understand cues and human gestures and etc. This level of AQ, adversity quotient, like, and then we will pay you more and renew your contract next year if you do. And if you don't, then we will find another private entity to do this. Hell, if we ran the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles that way, just said, look, we need to give out licenses. We need people to know these things about operating a vehicle, a two-ton vehicle on the road. Uh, but we realize these people that are not motivated, standing behind the counter, looking depressed and sad, where you look at the, I mean, they're not even doing like a, what was your experience like here at the DMV questionnaire? Because if they did, like it would just be one stars across the board. But again, you put that in the hands of private businesses and you go, hey, we want people to be safe drivers and we want this to be efficient because the moment you put it in the hands of a capitalist who is going to see profit from it, they will find a way to do it right. The only place I see the government do that and it works is they go, we are going to send these group of people to the moon or to the International Space Station. We need a rocket that's built with these specs. And they go, which country wants to make it? And the country that says, we will make it to those specs, the person with the lowest bid gets the deal. That is being a good fiduciary of our money. Why are we doing that in schools? Because if we did that in schools, and I, as an entrepreneur, as a capitalist, was incentivized to get my co the contract renewed. Dude, I would make sure that those kids are fit, athletic, have high IQ, have high EQ, have high AQ, so that I could renew my contract and then be able to get in the next city and the next city and the next city. But instead, we put it in the hands of government workers who, no matter what, have job security, are unionized, and nothing against the unions. Hell, I used to be a part of a union when I worked as a busboy and a fry cook at Disneyland. But I also remember just doing the bare minimum because I'm part of a union. You can't fire me. It's going to take a long time to fire me. Uh, so why don't we start with education like we do with a rocket that we're, the spaceship that we're trying to send people to uh, the International Space Station with. And if we did that, I think we would immediately see a big shift and how we are pumping out a healthier next generation. But the government would still have to require these specific standards that are good for society. Which leads us back to our first conversation. Why would I, if I wanted control of humanity, want to create smart, functional, healthy, strong, free-thinking individuals who might push back and combat my will? That's pretty scary. Mm -hmm. Well, the thing that I see is, is in the healthcare space. So I came from the UK, which I think as a philosophy is the best healthcare system on the planet. When funded properly, when run properly, because you are using a tax base to give healthcare to everyone. So the first person, the can you know, cancer patient walking in the hospital sees is not someone asking for a social security number. It's someone who's going to start the process of healing. 
when that's the philosophy, now the goal is to spend as little money as possible. So now your emphasis will be on prevention. What I see here, and again, I see it with my own eyes, is there's no money in dead people. There's no money in healthy people. And what have we got? A massive majority of chronically ill people that are drug addicts, whether it's statins or, you know, whatever it is. And so while they are profiting off sick Americans the same way as sadly some of these conflicts that we find ourselves in, it's never going to change. So, you know, getting the philosophy to focus on the prevention side, we would save money hand over fist in healthcare that we could pour into some of these other areas. Maybe there wouldn't be a poor area in a town anymore, you know. But right now, as, as a medic, I see it. You know, we, we respond on the, on the gang victims, on the overdoses, on the you know, morbidly obese cardiac arrests. So, you know, I mean, I don't feel like there's any emphasis on health at all in this country, on true health of the nation. There isn't. And, and again, I mean, you said it so eloquently. There's no money in dead people. There's no money in healthy people. The true money is in unhealthy people. Because if we can keep you sick and dependent on the different drugs and the tests and the modalities, um, which goes back to, again, freedom. Like, what can you do? to be your own doctor, take care of your own health. A couple of years ago, in 2019, I went to the doctor because I had bronchitis because we run this um, thing called The Project and I was awake 75 hours, it was cold and wet, whatever. I got bronchitis, I had a cold, it turned into the bronchitis. And they took my blood pressure and um, whatever it was, it was like you know 118 over uh, like 75 or something. I was like, I was like, hey, what was it? And they told me that. I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's, that's pretty good, right? She's like, oh, that's actually really good. And it's, uh, you know, average is one, 130 over 80. And I said, it's 130 over 80? Didn't it used to be 120? Last time I took a CPR class, it used to be 120 over 80. She goes, the average. So as people get sicker and fatter and health declines, we are now okay with an average of 130 over 80. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? We literally change like the standards based on people's fattiness. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, look at the size of wheelchairs. Right. You know? And it's, it blew my mind when I first moved here. And again, I'm not pretending that everyone in the UK is, <laughs> is a svelte triathlete. Um, you know, I'm not saying that I'm an Uber athlete either, but we literally have, you know, wheelchairs that when you put a normal patient in, it's almost like one of those joke chairs that you go when you're driving around the US and you mm-hmm. sit your family in it, you know, and that's, that's, you know, that's okay. We'll just make the chairs bigger rather than making the people back to the size they need to be. Yeah. There's, there's no uh, prevention is the answer, but there's, there's not a lot of money in prevention, unfortunately, uh, unless they can, we society can start, they can start changing the way they think they're, I live for prevention. I love my life. I want to be around for my wife and kids as long as possible. I want to be able to serve my team and, and my clients and customers worldwide as long as possible. I do everything I can preventatively to stay healthy of sound body and mind. But if you don't love your life, if you are just getting by, if you have put yourself in credit card debt, I mean, look how deep the cycle gets. What's your incentive for staying healthy? And why would you care? And therefore you subcontract your health to the medical industry that wants to keep you on the treadmill of medications and medications and medications. And each medication comes with its own slew. I know you've seen this firsthand. Julian tells me all about it. Um, each medication comes with a slew of side effects mm-hmm. that has its own like history of damage that it's gonna leave. Yeah. It's nuts. It is. Well, you touched on another area. I just interviewed, uh, do you know who Julian Pinot is? No. You know, strong fit. So he's actually French. Um, he was based out of the, Ho- uh, the Holland, the Netherlands, Holland. Um, but he's a kind of strong man, kind of movement guru, mad scientist, genius guy. Um, but he, in our conversation, hit on a really interesting point. He said a lot of people in, in this country and other countries too, there's, there's this kind of like middle group where there's almost a kind of acknowledgement that if you weren't there anymore, the world wouldn't really change much. A lot of the kind of white-collar jobs, what he was talking about. 
And I never thought of it that way. So when this hit and they were like, you need to stay at home and we'll give you some money and you can watch Tiger King, the people that love their jobs were like, uh, no. But there's a lot of people, like you said, that are you know mentally and physically lesser than they have the potential to be that that was a good option. I don't want to go to work. I fucking hate my job. So it was another kind of interesting way of looking at it that there was a lot of people that were more than happy to go home because they didn't want to be that. So again, with the kind of entrepreneurial journey that you've been on, what do you see from the workforce? Like, is there, is there a lot of untapped potential of people that are throwing on a tie and, and, you know, joining a machine that we should be inspiring to maybe start creating their own journeys? I, I think we should. Um, again, I can tell you just in the 15 years that I've been an entrepreneur, I could think of seven people that have left my organization and gone on to start their own business. And all of them, like I've been excited to support and teach and mentor. And then those who have stayed, our workplace is a little different. We're very polarizing and everyone here can kind of tell you, like you come in here and you're either repelled by us because you go, holy shit, I can't get away with it. I can't just push around papers for eight hours and get away with this. So you're either gonna be repelled by us and leave or we're gonna catch on very quickly and part ways with you. And so anyone that does take on a role is expected to constantly improve and then replace yourself with someone as good as you or better so you can keep taking the next position up. And I say, look, I'm the entrepreneur. I'll take the big risks. I'll come up with the big vision. I'll you know, put the marketing dollars and buy the building and et cetera. But I want you guys not to be my employees, but to be intrapreneurs. As an entrepreneur, <clears throat> I'm gonna take the big risks. As an intrapreneur, what can you do to get behind that camera and to create content so awesome and then to get behind that computer with that content and edit it so well that we get a million eyeballs and not just 500,000 eyeballs on it. Like that's what how an entrepreneur thinks. An employee thinks like, like my job is to film this and then just give it a quick edit and then put it up there. And then let's see what YouTube does with it. Let's see what a podcast platform does. So I'm looking for entrepreneurs. I'm looking for people who want to take their position and make a, make a mini business out of it. But there's not a lot of organizations like that. Like if I can go back to say 20 to 25 year old me, I would find a place that forced me to be an entrepreneur and not just an employee so that I could think at a higher level, have higher standards of expectations for myself. I would have grown more personally, professionally, financially sooner. Um, but instead, I was like, hey, what could I do? Let me work for a big company like Disneyland that is got you know thousands of employees and I could blend in and do the bare minimum and then uh, be protected by a union. Like I was one of them, so I understand how they think. It's just that at some point I had this awakening because of a mentor that it was, it was funny for me. It was just like, I, cause I was working as a fry cook and a bus boy at Disneyland. And I was also a part-time personal trainer in a gym. And I had like three personal training clients, which is why I worked at Disneyland. Um, one of my personal training clients like drove up one day with like this beautiful Cadillac Escalade. Two days later, comes to his training session. I'm looking out the window from the gym. He's pulling up this classic Mercedes sedan. And he came in. His name is Jim Frank. I'm like, Jim, what? Just a couple days ago, you had a champagne-colored Cadillac Escalade. Now you've got this. He goes, yeah, and I also have this classic Jaguar in my garage that I drive on weekends. I'm like, you have three cars? He goes, you can have as many as you want. And it just blew my mind. I'm like, and why do you, is it, how is it that you get here at two o'clock in the afternoon? Like, don't you have a job? He's like, I do, I have a company and I lead my people and that allows me the freedom to leave at 1.30 and come and work out with you before the gym gets busy and then go home and live my life. He built, he literally designed his own lifestyle, man. And I was like, I want what you have. And he started to mentor me. Uh, but previous to that, I was just a cog in a wheel and hoping to just kind of, if I can just get by and be protected by a union and take my, you know, my, get my raises, um, cost of living raises, like I'm good. 
Like I know how they think, but in reality, we need to be encouraging fr from little babies on to students, to employees. Like, dude, grow, spread your wings, demand more of yourself, do hard shit, treat your job as though it's a business. And then when you do, prove to me how you made us more money and then demand more money from me. Like I could say that with employees, team members here in this room, because they can prove to me how much more they made and I would have to pay them more to retain them because I don't want to lose them, right? Like that's how competitive this should be. But again, there's only a small handful of organizations, companies that are willing to empower their people like that because, well, if they're too empowered, they might leave. Well, what if they leave and you're able to find somebody else just as good because you've got such a great reputation about your business, right? Yeah, exactly. And it, par it parallels the, the first responder professions very well. I mean, you know, the, the good leaders out there you know, are doing that. They're training them well and then they're letting them lead their people. And if they need to go further up the chair chain for advice, then, you know, they do. And then they're obviously the bad ones are the micromanagers that there's showing that there's zero trust and, you know, it's a right. shit show. Um, but the other side of it is we, and you talk about unions, like I love the union philosophy. I'm not uber impressed by, for example, the firefighter union in some areas that I paid 14 years for. But um, the they chase the pension in the fire service and in law enforcement, 25 years, you know, and drop, you know, and there's all these kind of little plans that, that keep you there. And you end up with responders that have apps on their phones that, oh, only 10 years left, oh. you know, only a thousand shifts or whatever it so is. you're in fucking prison. <clears throat> exactly. So and it's, an, it's an amazing job that we all adore, but there is a point that right. it's set up the way we do the shifts and everything. It does start to beat you down. What I love is when I see responders, because the transition out is such a, you know, mental health challenge, you lose that tribe, that community, that purpose, that they're empowered and they start some sort of project and they transition and they're like, I served for X amount of years, it was amazing, but now I'm able to help in a different way. I am a personal trainer. Like I always say, when I coach, when I was a firefighter, you're, I'm like, I'm, this face is the last one you see. That's pretty sad if you get to see this <laughs> before you die. When I'm in the gym, it's preventative. Right. So I'm stopping you hopefully ever being in the back. So, you know, I think, you know, what you're talking about is really, really important for responders to hear. If they've done 5, 10, 15, 20 years, the pension is not the be-all and end-all. And you can actually probably earn a lot more if your heart is truly in an entrepreneurial, you know, project that has the same mission, but you're now your own boss. And that was so empowering for me with the project. Dude, I I'm going to... Your world, like... I'm so happy to hear you say this because you come from that world of first responders. And so to hear you say it, like every first responder who's, you know, f from the firefighter world to the police officer world, EMTs, they need to hear that. Uh, a, a dear friend of mine, I won't mention his name, our kids go to the same school. I love him to pieces. He's a LA County Sheriff deputy. And we're talking one day and he's like, yeah, man, nine more years. I'm like, nine more years for what? He goes, until I'm out with my pension. I go, tell me how it works. He goes, well, I get, I forget what it was, 60 or 70%, maybe it was 80% of his highest year's salary and benefits. I'm like, dude, nine years? Do you know what you can create in nine years as an entrepreneur? Like if you just decided to open up something, anything, and really focused on it, you can create that wealth probably in the next five years. He goes, well, what about the benefits? Like they pay for my benefits for my wife and my two kids. I go, you know, the rest of us, we buy our own benefits, our own healthcare. You can do that. And his jaw dropped. Like he had never thought about, because he was always given benefits, health benefits. Well, interestingly enough, he went on to open up a Fit Body Boot Camp. And he built that Fit Body Boot Camp up all while working as a sheriff's deputy, Joe knows exactly who I'm talking about, as his wife got pregnant with their third child, he sold that for $475,000 and then went on. And in that time, he and I were working like together, not just going out and working out and hanging out as friends, but we were actually working together on his financial intelligence. Dude, he went on to be a financial planner for 
police officers. And he had this nice little nest egg to start with. And he called me. Uh, we see each other probably once every couple months, but he called me late into 2021 last year. And he said, hey, uh, I'm leaving the department because my sheriff is not standing up against these mandated vaccines and I'm not willing to take it. And he had the ability to leave because he had that nest egg. He became an entrepreneur. He became a financial advisor. Um, and all of that created freedom opportunities for him that he would have not had. And maybe he would have been forced to take the vaccine. And by the way, I'm not anti-vaccine. I'm anti-making me do shit. Anti-mandates. That's it. That's it. You can take as much vaccine as you want until you're just like, your back teeth are floating because you've taken so much vaccines. Don't pressure me into it. Uh, so anyway, it's, it's just so neat when someone has that s switch flip in their head when they realize, one, I could, I could still be an entrepreneur. Like Julian, our mutual friend. He's a mm -hmm. firefighter paramedic out of Tampa. Uh, starting his side gig. And he'll get to a point where he'll replace that income with this income. And then if he wants to, he'll have the freedom to move on and not have to get that app and count down 25 years. And a new sense of purpose where, like you said, that community, the tribe, the purpose is a very important thing. Like we need that. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, touching on that, it's a good segue. So thank you for throwing me the softball. Um, <laughs> a huge moment or kind of realization for me when I started interviewing all these people, and we're talking anyone from fire police, you know, I've had boy soldier from Sierra Leone, Auschwitz survivors, but the tactical population, I was amazed how many of these men and women had significant trauma when they were kids. Mm -hmm. So we don't think about what are we bring into when we put the badge on, put the uniform on. I know you've you know, been very open about your kind of early life and then your journey through. So I'd love to just spend a little bit of time, you know, talk to me about that. And then where, where were you compensating? You know, where were you kind of filling the void? And then when, when did you have your real realization that liberated you? Well, um, let's start with some stats. We know that one out of every three people, male or female, have had physical, mental, or emotional abuse. Then we know that one out of every four people have had some kind of sexual abuse, rape, molestation. We also know now, through all the studies they've done, that if they do a CAT scan of your brain, whether you're the one out of three or the one out of four, if they do a CAT scan of your brain, the part of your brain that lights up, the fight or flight, area that lights up like a Christmas tree lights up because of that trauma. doesn't matter if it's been physical, mental, emotional, or sexual abuse, that part of your brain lights up. And that part of your brain will light up, and then all of a sudden you have trust issues. All of a sudden you see the world as a threat. Uh, you operate out of FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Um, now imagine, are you married? Yes, sir. So imagine going into a marriage with fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and this undertone of, I don't trust anybody. It's probably destined to fail, right? And so people that have gone through any kind of trauma, not only does it affect their self-esteem, self-image, confidence, uh, self-worth, but there's also this undertone of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And of course, uh, I, I don't trust because I've been injured, I've been hurt. But we go, well, I'm just going to suppress that. As guys, we're really good at putting it in a box and putting it away, compartmentalizing, and going, I'm good. I'm good. Well, you're only good for so long because soon you find yourself pressing up against a glass ceiling, upper limiting. In my case, I was molested in Armenia before we escaped. Between the ages of four and six, I was molested over and over again by these two older boys. When I was uh, younger, they were older, and I was molested by them. So when we escaped Armenia, the Soviet Union came here, my family thought they just, you know, they brought me to freedom, not realizing they freed me from something so awful. I, of course, realizing that that's now behind me, uh, put it mentally away, 
Every time it would come up, I would just suppress it further. And this was only in hindsight after working with a therapist for 16 months, James. Um, so I'm like, man, I'm, it doesn't happen to me anymore. I'm freed. I'm good. I'm good to go. Well, I'm 47 now. At the age of 38, I had this massive panic attack. So bad, in fact, that I thought I was having a heart attack. <laughs> and I remember when I finally recovered from this would-be heart attack, panic attack, I remember thinking like, holy shit, man. I was like sweating at that point. Yeah, I wanted a you know, tunnel vision. My, I could hear my heart racing in my ear. My throat was closing up. What made me think it was a heart attack is my arms were tingling, man. And I remember reading, again, you know, getting first aid CPR certified many years ago as a personal trainer. I was like, I remember thinking like, when well, someone's having a heart attack, I think one of their arms hurts or something. And I was like, fuck, man, both of my arms are tingling. This is the big one, right? Well, as it turns out, it was just a panic attack. Uh, so when it all went away, I was like, all right, man, I cheated death. That evening, I told my wife, she's like, holy crap, we got to go to the doctor and see what's going on. They put me through all the EKG tests. Everything's fine. And the doctor's like, hey, man, how's your stress? And before I could say anything, my wife's like, horrible, awful. Like, he just, you know, he takes NyQuil every night to fall asleep. And then uh, NyQuil, actually NyQuil and Vicodin, because um, I had an ACL reconstruction done. And I use the uh, Vicodin to fall asleep. When you combine NyQuil and Vicodin together, it's a deadly combo to fall asleep. The only problem is you have to wake up the next morning. And so you drink a lot of coffee and pre-workout, and then you get your hands on some Adderall as well, and that wakes you up. So you can imagine what I was going through in addition to trying to build a business and lead people and all while having this conversation in the back of my head, because that's where that trauma, that's where that conversation takes place, by the way, in the back of your head. Um, I'm not worthy. I'm not, I'm, I'm not lovable. I could just be thrown away. Um, I'm an imposter. I'm a hypocrite. Soon they're going to all find out, not want to work for me. And that's because I was living in a state of shame, rage, and confusion. Shame, because I can't believe this happened to me as a kid. I was molested. Nobody can find out. Rage, how the fuck did this happen to me? Why didn't anyone try and save me and help me and stop those kids from, from molesting me? And then confusion, like, did I do something to invite that? Did I do something to encourage those boys to do that? Like, am I, is there something fucked up with me that I asked for that? And so all that, though, was gathered by working with the therapist. I worked with the therapist because when I went to the doctor to uh, see if I had a heart attack, it's like, no, man, that was the first of probably many panic attacks you're going to have. They put me on Xanax. Two weeks into Xanax, I was like, I don't want this shit. Like, it was making me numb. Um, I said, what's my alternative? He's like, well, talk therapy. You got you to gotta be able to talk with the therapist, and they'll give you tools to cope with your stress and anxiety and overwhelm. Well, within four weeks, I was able to get tools to deal with my stress, anxiety, overwhelm. And Kevin, the therapist, was so good at building rapport, that fucker, that he got me to open up about what really happened to me as a kid. I spent the next 15 months um, working with him every Monday at 6 p.m. I'd leave here at 5 o'clock, get to Brea, um, and work with him on what happened to me as a child. And... Dude, I kid you not, <clears throat> you can go back and historically look at, look at the growth of Fit Body Bootcamp, and you'll see that. So I said that happened in uh, 2013, um, the panic attack. Late 2013, I started working with Kevin, uh, 20, you know, 15 months. So 2015, 2016, 2017, Fit Body Bootcamp hits the Inc. 500 and the, and the Entrepreneur Magazine's 200 fastest growing franchises in the world. My income, my impact, my family relationship, everything hockey sticks because I chose to take out or break through that glass ceiling, the limiting beliefs that I had. And so many people operate from that place of trauma, never healing, never seeking counsel, thinking that by suppressing these feelings, uh, and, and at the very best, you suppress it and you put it in a box and you're just living on edge. Most of the time, you are soothing and shielding yourself through vices, whether that vice be alcohol, drugs, infidelity, pornography, food. In my case, it was food. Uh, distractions, like I'm going to build another business and another business and another business. And I remember telling Kevin, I'm starting my seventh business now. And he just started laughing. And I'm like, what the fuck are you laughing for, man? He goes, uh, how long are you going to have these distractions? Like, 
was like, oh shit. Here I thought, but you know, we can justify it with I'm creating wealth for my for my team and, and security for my family and impacting so many lives. You're also distracting yourself from the shit you need to deal with. So at what point are you going to stop, slow down, and process through what happened to you and understand that it happens to one out of every three or one out of every four and actually heal from it? And so I took the time to do that, and it's absolutely changed my life. But again, what needs to happen for so many people to do that? We're... And the trauma can, can come by way, and I know like in your world, because I've got a dear friend who I've known for 30 years, uh, he's a fire captain in Columbus, Ohio, Ladder 5, shout out to Ladder 5, uh, Black Lake, Ohio, Bobby Vaccio. He's like, man, you see a baby charred to death, burnt to death. He goes, in the truck, back to the station, and you have to joke about that, right? That's a coping mechanism. But it leaves a scar, and that scar compounded with another one and another one and another one, soon vices begin to kick in. Soon you begin to lash out to loved ones, and then the downfall of humanity begins. Well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, it's it, like I said, I'm just amazed how many stories I hear. I mean, it, it mirrors so many of her before. You wrote a book, Man Up. You've got the project. You've got the Squire program. Um, I, when I were kind of running short of times, so I wanted to squeeze this in as well. Um, to me, there's a facade of masculinity. Toxic masculinity, to me, is actually the belief that you're this Terminator Rocky Rambo and you just go operate and you have no feelings whatsoever. So what were you able to kind of come to terms with with your emotion? What do you tell men as far as the compassion, the kind of, you know, the be the yin of the yin-yang to... Understand, like, hey, a masculine is, you know, walk softly, carry a big stick rather than just carry a big stick. Right. Well, th that also is a shielding and soothing mechanism to carry a big stick and beat your chest. In fact, have you read the book, The Body Keeps the Score? I own it. I still haven't read it All yet, right. but I know exactly, yeah. you know, the content because I've yeah. discussed it enough times. Do Dr. Van Beasel, there's a chapter that I swear I thought he had written for me or of me. He said, when young boys have been raped or molested, some grow up to use steroids and get big and strong and get tatted up to look mean and aggressive as a way of building armor. It's just armor. Money is armor. Um, so many, you, you said it, you said so many special operations guys that go in the military, something traumatic has happened to them. They go and become just these killers at what they do. It's armor because subconsciously it's like, man, I'm going to be big and strong and aggressive looking and no one's ever going to fuck with me again. Well, yeah, you're grown ass men. No one's going to molest you again. You're good. You're good. But that subconscious mind is still trying to protect that little boy within who's still afraid, right? Until you heal. And so as I'm reading his book, man, I'm like, this motherfucker's talking about me. He's talking about me. Um, so the healing must happen. No matter what, uh, if it doesn't, like it is going to stick out its ugly head. Uh, Kevin said it in such a great way, man. Kevin, my therapist, he's like, look, you're a big dude. You're a strong dude. Imagine taking a beach ball and we put you in the pool about waist high. And I go, Bedros, hold this beach ball under the water for as long as you can. He goes, how long can you hold it? I'm like, for a long time. He goes, sooner or later, though, you're going to have an itch or a little fly is going to land on your ear and you're going to want to scratch your nose or ear, right? And I go, yeah. He goes, what happens when you do that? I go, well, the ball's going to pop out. He goes, exactly. That's what happens with your rage. You can keep it suppressed for so long. He goes, now, what if we actually just take the air out of that ball and we go hands off? Wouldn't you feel so much better? I'm like, yeah. And the work began. Um, so anyway, all this to say, man, that the healing is necessary. Um, it's underutilized, under-talked about, and I think podcasts like yours and platforms like yours who are willing to talk about it and expose it and make it less taboo, uh, whether it's for first responders or military guys or just regular humans that have gone through trauma. And you hear those stats and you go, well, shit. And you look at the number of people just in this room, and you're like, damn, someone's been molested and probably beaten. 
in this room, you know? And uh, that's just a human condition. We don't need to be embarrassed by it. We just need to heal and move on. Absolutely. Well, I thank you for being one of the many voices. I think that's how we deprogram this is getting SAS and Navy SEALs and, you know, yourself and all these other characters that are viewed as alphas and tell their story. Like, hey, this has happened. This is what it is to be an alpha. This is the good. This is the bad. So for people listening, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you have Fit Body Bootcamp. You have the project, which, you know, is where Julia met you and, you know, sounds like an incredible, um, you know, thing to be a part of that community. You have the Squire program for the fathers and the sons. So much to offer the, the nutrition. Where are the best places online for people to learn more about that and then where to follow you on social media? Yeah, good question. The The, the best place to learn about all, all of that or is just to follow me on Instagram on that one platform um, at Bedros Koulian because I talk about the organizations that I've created that are my passion projects and make no mistake about it, man. Everything I do is, is another way to heal myself, right? Like working with men that have gone through trauma, who are leaders in business, who are leaders uh, in, 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 in combat, and don't maybe necessarily want to go work with a therapist yet, but want to be in an environment where they do strong, tough shit for 75 hours, but then build camaraderie during that 75 hour period where they can openly talk about the traumas and what happened and their limiting beliefs and journal about things and then be open then to move on to the next phase of healing, which is maybe to work with a therapist after that, right? And and so I'm so proud of the guys that have gone through the project, uh, the fathers and sons that have gone through the Squire program where they, they bring their sons because they wanna create a rite of passage for those boys into manhood. And then we hear the same thing over from every dad. I got more out of this than I think my son did because I didn't realize the deficiencies that I had. Because knowing that we, there's about a three hour period during the 15 hours of the Squire program, we separate the fathers and sons and we just pour into the fathers while two of our instructors are having a fun time with the sons in terms of doing really cool evolutions, ice baths, truck pulls, while we're educating the dads on, hey, when was the last time you took your wife on a date night? When was the last time you were able to communicate without arguing? I'm like, holy crap, yeah. When was the last time you just sent a surprise text message of love and gratitude to your spouse? I'm like, oh my God, I haven't. And do you wonder why your wife's walking on eggshells and passive aggressive with you, right? And when they learn that being a real alpha, bringing this full circle, being a real alpha means that you are a lion and a lamb, as my friend John Lovell says, uh, former army ranger and uh, shout out to him, Warrior Poet Channel, Warrior Poet Society. Uh, but if the, the, the false alphas just show up as a lion, constantly growling and claws and fangs, um, I, I've learned, maybe it's just as I get older, I've just put the wall down. And uh, I've learned that the more I could show love and compassion and empathy, people are like, man, you're a real alpha. It's like, am I or am I just finally comfortable in my own skin, mm -hmm. right? But the real alphas are truly the lions and the lambs. And the... Uh, John Lovell says it best, and I think we'll leave it at that, which is if you've gone to war, and war could look like anything in business, like this, in 2020, I was at war as a franchisor in the fitness industry. I was at war, man, trying to keep my franchise alive. Whether you've gone to war to fight the enemy or war to fight for your livelihood or war to fight for your mental sanity, um, you have to show up as a lion in war. But if you come home and you can't show up as a lamb to show that soft underbelly, you failed. You failed and that's, you're no longer an alpha. You're just a, a brute and nobody wants to be around a brute. <laughs>